0: We have entitled this morning's message, Encouragement to the Discouraged. Who would not want encouragement, especially while being discouraged? In a general way, I think we are dealing with one of the richest and encouraging, most encouraging texts for believers here this morning. We are also dealing with one of the most well-known texts, I believe, of Scripture, especially as you come down to verse 6. Another thing that we realize as we come to this text, this text is we're dealing with probably one of the simplest and clearest, in my personal opinion, uh, texts that show us what salvation is. Very clear. It is also one of the most amazing texts, again, in my personal opinion, when you consider the context of what is being spoken about. When you look at the overall context, it is absolutely amazing what we have here before the Lord. But to begin with, is it not true that our life, all of us, life in general as a human being, although as Job said, it's like a fire that goes upward and so forth, flames and the flickering and so forth. But our life is filled with troubles. Our life is filled with trials, with tribulation, uncertainty, anxiety, any of this hitting home? Depression, discouragement. And for those of you that we haven't hit upon, please, I'd like to meet with you afterwards so you can encourage me. Because all of these things come into our life. Life is filled with it. And we all know the feeling. When we get into any one of these situations, the feeling is kind of sick in your stomach. It's also a kind of a situation where it does affect our mind. And we can feel it. Our emotions are touched by it. And we have a reaction emotionally. And without question, these circumstances of life affect our physical being, but they also, we can't escape it, it affects our mind. It affects the way we think, if we're honest. And why is that when trouble, tribulation, when these things happen in our life? It's usually because of information that we've received or because, as Pastor Chris was referring to this morning when he opened us up with some challenges, the circumstances or situations that are around us, the economy in today's day and age, uh, our health and our disasters that happen in life, threatenings that come our way, that threaten our security, whatever it would be. It all drives us to a point of fear, or if you will allow it for a moment here this morning, trouble, as we will see in our text. It it, it drives us to a place where we get troubled by it. And I think it's helpful to realize that, first of all, Scripture does not imagine that these things don't exist. Sometimes as believers, we want to imagine that these things are just not a part of reality. Scripture does not approach it that way, and I'm thankful for it. It doesn't ignore the fact that we will have trials and tribulations and troubles and things of this nature in our life. Scripture does not ignore that at all. In fact, the Scripture tells us to expect it, that we should expect these situations as we go through our journey in life. It is a reality of our life. And indeed, I believe the scriptures prepares us for what will come, because there are going to be troubles. If you haven't faced any of the things that I've mentioned, trouble, tribulation, depression, anxiety, any of those things, be thankful, but beware, because you will one time. They will come. It's guaranteed. The other thing that I'm encouraged by, though, is the Scriptures don't stop there, because the Scriptures do give us solutions. The Scriptures do give us the encouragement that we need. And I believe that this is one of those texts that do that very thing in a circumstance that was obviously, by the language of its own text, very troubling to the people that were chosen by God to be his representations on earth, his very apostles. It's an amazing text. We are still in the upper room discourse. He's privately alone with his apostles. He is still teaching them. He is still instructing them. He has just told them that they were to love one another as he had loved them, a text well-known and well-abused, in my personal opinion, throughout Christianity, because it's not as I loved you, but it's just love and that concept. He has demonstrated, he has not only charged them with that, he has demonstrated his love by washing their feet, and most recently, leading into our text this morning, by loving Peter even though he just told Peter that he would deny the Lord Jesus Christ three times before the cock crows. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated his love by just stating the fact of what he would do, but continuing to love him. Further, as we come to our text, Jesus himself, we need to remember, is troubled. Let's not forget that, or you'll lose the text. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is troubled in his heart. He's troubled in his spirit. Let me remind us of what we've seen in this context. Go with me to chapter 12, verse 27. Just a couple of verses here. I think it helps us to understand what's going on. In John chapter 12, verse 27, we read this. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Remember that? And we expounded that. But the Lord Jesus Christ was troubled, even to the point of saying, "If I think I use the expression, something like, get me out of here. That's what the Lord had come to in his own life. He was troubled in spirit. He knew. He experienced that. Chapter 13, look at verse 21. This has not stopped, by the way, because in chapter 13, verse 21... It tells us when Jesus had said this, he became, what? Troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So he's now also troubled because he knew the betrayer was right in his midst. And we need to remember that in the context. When we get ready to talk about the trouble that the disciples were having, Jesus Christ himself is troubled in spirit. He's troubled in his mind. He knows what's going on. And look where we left off in verse 38. In 38, he says, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Talking to Peter. If you don't think this is troubling, watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, that is Peter, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. I challenge any one of us that we would not be troubled or discouraged or feel feel fearful, or have anxiety over situations like this. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of that himself. Why point that out? Judas has has now left the scene. He's gone to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter will deny the Lord Jesus Christ. All of his apostles will desert him in just hours. All of them. He will be facing false accusations against him. He will be facing illegal trials in just hours. He will be facing a scourging that you and I have never seen the likes of, nor ever will want to, that physically would be overbearing for anybody. He will then face crucifixion and the agony and pain physically of what that will mean to his body. All of that is in his mind and heart, and he's troubled. And not only that, above all of that, because the scriptures reveal to us, he will face rejection from the Father, the most excruciating pain of all to him, as he bears the penalty and price for sin. All of that is in front of him. He's troubled in spirit and mind. He's told us that. And it's only hours away. You would think... Would you not, I do, that if there was ever an opportunity, if there was ever the time for the disciples, or let's put it this way, even the apostles, if there was ever a time for the apostles to reach out and give spiritual support to the Lord Jesus Christ, this was it. He told them what he was facing. He even told Peter. And you would think with all the trouble that he's facing, this is the ideal time for them to take the Lord Jesus Christ and just surround him with love and give him all types of spiritual support, comfort, emotional encouragement, because he needs it. Doesn't he? Yes. Does he get it? No. When we talk about, why did I show you all of that? When we talk about Jesus Christ saying that you ought to love as I have loved you, he's the very one that needs the comfort. He's the very one that needs the support. And yet he is the one that shows them the love and encourages them in their trouble. Amazing. Absolutely. We could stop right here this morning. The G- Jesus Christ, needing all the support by the closest ones to him, finds none. And yet, his knowing what they are going to do to him, he reaches out to them in their trouble and supports them. Astounding. That is what it means when he says, Love one another as I have loved you. He is down. He is troubled. He knows what's in front of him, and he still reaches out with love. Amazing. Absolutely astounding. And someone is going to betray him very shortly. His apostles were troubled. They were discouraged. Why? They were uncertain. Where's he going? And how does he encourage them? Well, there's your outline for this morning's message. He encourages them at least in three ways. By telling them in their situation of uncertainty that they had to trust Him, number one. Secondly, that they had to trust in eternal values rather than the earthly ones that are in front of them. And thirdly, they had to trust not in their way, but in God's plan or God's way as I have it outlined for you. So let's look at it. We pick it up in verse 1. And the first point of encouragement is he's telling them to trust in Jesus, to trust in God, verse 1. But before he gets to the positive, notice what he says kind of in the negative sense. Do not let your heart be troubled. First of all, he tells them what to stop doing. And that's what it means. It's a present imperative here. They are commanded to stop worrying. They are commanded to stop. We've seen that term before, so I'm not going to amplify it too too much more this morning. The concept of troubling was the stirring up. They were stirred up in their spirit, just like we've seen in other uh, texts even this morning that I've read. It's like the stirring up of the waters. They were bothered by something. They were worried. They were fearful, if you will, though it's a different word. That's the whole concept behind it. They were stirred up in their inner being, and they were worrying. And the first thing he says to them is, stop doing it. Now, that may sound basic, but too often, let me say to you, we dwell on the problem. We dwell on the negative. I do that. You do that. When we're in a situation, we can't see beyond it. And the situation becomes overwhelming to us. We begin to dwell on it. We begin to see the negative. And then we use this excuse, I can't help it. Yes, you can. Stop doing it. It needs to take action. We need to do that ourselves. You just say sometimes I can't help it. It's just my emotions, they take over. You can't help it. Stop doing it. That's what Jesus says to them. First thing he says is, don't let your heart be troubled. Stop worrying. Stop being stirred up in your spirit. It's like children, right? I get so discouraged, I honestly do, when I see parents that say, well, my children can't help themselves. Yes, they can. You're training them wrong right now. You're helping them to not be able to stop doing it. And sometimes what you need to say to children is, stop doing what you're doing it that's the best discipline at all stop it and don't say stop it or else and then later on stop it or else or else or else threaten the children six or seven times and never follow through it's a joke and they know it well the same principle with children where we need to tell them to stop doing what you're doing is what God was telling them stop doing what you're doing that is the first way to start to get success Don't focus on the difficulty or the circumstance. Stop it right there. Focus on the one who can get you the help. And that's where he's going to lead them. Stop focusing on the problem. Focus on the solution. And he gives them the positive right away. So after giving the negative, stop doing this. Here's what he says. Trust in God. Bottom line. I'm going to say a lot of things about that, but replace it. Don't just stop doing what you're doing. Do something else. What? Trust in God. Now let's put this a little bit in perspective. I'll try to illustrate it for you before I go on uh, even from this point. Were these people who are trusted in Jesus Christ? I believe so. And then he's calling them to trust in him again? I don't think it's initial salvation that he's dealing with here, first of all. And probably the illustration, I think, that helps me the most, if you remember back in the Exodus... Remember how the uh, Jewish people would have their firstborn son survive? Was it not that they had to slay the lamb? and What did they have to do with the blood? They would put the blood on the doorpost, right? That showed the evidence that they were trusting. True? Yes. They had already done the initial act. I've got to believe, though, that there were many a family that were inside when they heard the screams and when they heard what was going on, they were kind of nervous And they had trusted in the Lord, but they were still wondering, is he really going to pass by? I better believe there's a lot of them that were like that. You see, the initial trust was there, but in the circumstances now of the reality where death is all around them and things are being done, they were trusting God's word, but they were still nervous, and they, they needed to stop doing that because God told them to do what they were supposed to do, and he would take care of them, and he did. And what's he saying to them now? Stop doing what you're doing and worrying. Stop looking at the circumstances about not knowing where I'm going and even the person that's going to deny me and all of this and focus on trusting in God. Even when you don't have the solution because Thomas is going to come up with a question this morning or two. Even when you don't have the solution, what am I to do? Trust in God. Let me give you a couple of verses. We ought to look to the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are told in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. We've seen that just last week. He has said, Come unto me, all you that are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. We just read in Psalm 56, we use it for children. At times when I am afraid, what will I do? Help me. Trust in thee. Trust in God. What else? We learn in the New Testament he's not given us the spirit of fear when Paul was talking to Timothy, or timidity. What's he given us? Power, love, and of discipline. That's what God's given us. There are so many verses that we can call upon. Do we face the reality of difficult circumstances that cause us to be troubled and tribulations and difficulties? Yes, we do. But can we have victory? Absolutely. First thing is stop dwelling on them. Second thing is turn to the one who, who has the solution. And the solution is found in trusting in God. Now, let me say something about it. This is not the easiest thing in the world, though it may look that way to you. The New American Standard presents it as an imperative. In fairness to the text, just so you're aware of it, uh, if you look back at King James, it translates it differently. And the reason is, it can be translated accurately, both as an indicative and as an imperative, which may not mean a lot to most of you. But if it was just translated as an indicative, it would be this way. You believe in God. It's just a statement. But an imperative would be believe in God. Not just making a statement that you believe in God. It would be commanding them. That's what they ought to do, to believe in God. And either way would be a proper translation for the words there in the Greek. And it allows absolutely for at least, at a minimal, four different possibilities in the translation. What do you believe? What do I believe is the best in the context? I believe a command, the new American standard, is correct. Why? Because of, first of all, verse 34. In the context, in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give you that ye love one another. He's just commanded them, number one, to love one another. Secondly, he's just commanded them in verse one, don't be troubled. And I believe that's the correct translation. But even more so, in the immediate context, he's going to show them why they ought to be trusting God. Why? He's going to tell them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's going to tell them, I'm coming back for you. He's going to tell them that you're going to be in my father's house. He's going to tell them that he is the way for them to trust. So I believe the immediate context would lend itself, I think, properly to a translation as an imperative. And so what he's telling them to do is number one, stop worrying, but number two, start believing in God. And then he says, also believe in me. That is in Jesus Christ. They know who he is. They know what he's done. And to put it simply, he's saying, take your focus off the problem and look on to the solution. Take the focus off yourself and put it on God. Take the focus of what is bothering you And the only one who understands it all, and that's God himself. And that is very practical to you and I. If you want encouragement in those situations, look at the situation, recognize it's real, but take your focus off it and look to the one who can give you relief, and that is God. The one who knows what's going on. Believe in him. Trust in him. That's what it means. That's the word for trust there. We ought to trust God even when we are in the most difficult situations. Why? He's the one that knows sovereignly what is going on. He's the one who sovereignly knows what his plan is for us. And I like to look at the fact that, in my opinion, it's equality between God and the Son, Father and the Son, because if you believe in God, believe also in me. And I believe there's equality there. We ought to trust in Jesus Christ and all that he taught So the first way to encourage them is to tell them to stop doing what you were doing. What is that? Worrying, being troubled, being fearful. Are you in a real situation? Yes. Am I leaving you? Yes. Was Jesus Christ aware that he had to go to the cross and all this was going to happen? Yes. That's not going to change. But rather than dwell on that and continue to be, and that's what happens to us. We dwell on the situation, we think about it, we analyze it, we come up with a long list of what about this, or if this happens, then this will happen, and if this happens, and what happens if I die in this situation, and what happens if, if the cancer gets the best of me, and what happens if I don't find a job, and what happens if, if this happens, and, and this child, and, 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 and he's saying, stop doing that. Yes, it's real, but trust me. Turn to me. Trust God. Take your focus off that. Secondly, take the focus off that which is temporal and put it on that which is eternal. This isn't easy to do. But it's what he says. You want encouragement in your situation? Stop looking at the situation. Look to God. Do you know that the world can't do that? And yet they sometimes try better than Christians do. Because when they're in the face of a very big crisis... They will cry out, God, just please deliver me out of this. They know where to look. Too often as Christians, we're in the difficulty and we don't know where to look. But praise the Lord when we hear testimony after testimony of how God brings victory and even peace, or as we heard this morning, even joy, even when we're not happy about the situation we're in. God can do that for the believer. So how do I trust in eternal values? Verses 2 and 3. Here's how. In my Father's house. Let me stop there. In my Father's house, Jesus Christ says. There's the equality again. It's my Father. It's in my Father's house or in my Father's home. Where is that? Heaven. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Because the Scripture says so. Let's just go to a couple of verses on that quickly. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, since that's the one we're studying at night. Let's take a look at just a couple of verses there. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 13. It says, In that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. That doesn't sound too good. No, it doesn't. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. Now watch. And gave glory to the God of where? Heaven. the God of heaven, verse 19. And the temple of God, which is where, in heaven was opened. Go with me to one more verse, and there's plenty, by the way, just in this book alone. But go with me to Revelation 16. Look at verse 11. And they blaspheme. This is when the pain of the bold judgments are coming out. And it says, and they blaspheme the God of what? Heaven. Because of their pains and their sorrows." And isn't it interesting, sometimes that's what the people do, even on earth today. When things go wrong, now everybody blames God. All of a sudden, it's his fault. They know who to blame. But what I want you to catch, he's the God of heaven. His temple is where? In heaven. Heaven is a real place. There's a mockery made of that today in this world, and it's very possible as you sit there in the pew, you're wondering, is heaven a real place? Yes, it is. Well, who's there? God is. That's where his home is. Can't he be everywhere? Yes. But he has a specific place that he's identified in which he has called heaven. And so Jesus Christ turns to his disciples, he says, stop looking at the problem. Second, trust in God, or trust in me, Jesus Christ, what I've told you. And then what he says, I want you to know something. Look at eternal values. In my Father's house, heaven, it's a real place. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not just a cartoon. It's not just something out there. It's a real place, a real home. And he tells us a little bit more about it, verse 2. In my Father's house, watch, are many dwelling places. Now, that is important. I'll tell you why. One of the first things that I used to sing as a believer, many of you, I'm sure, have sung it, is I've got a mansion over the hilltop. And as a young believer, I used to imagine this nice, beautiful log cabin that God's got set for me in heaven because I like log cabins. You know, I just could picture it. That's not the picture here at all. Don't take your theology from your hymns. And what are we saying? This is not the word for mansion. That's not it. It is dwelling places. It's not an individual home. Don't think of this in terms of when I get to heaven, I got this home, someone else has got this home, and someone else has got this home, and we walk down this place where all of these palatial residences are and so forth, and they're just gorgeous. That's not the picture at all. That's the wrong picture of what this is saying. What is this saying? It means dwelling places. It means abode. It means rooms. In fact, in the very same chapter, the same word is used. Look at chapter 14, verse 23. I want you to see it. In verse 23, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make, and here's the same word for mansion, if you will, we will make our abode with him. That is the same Greek word as you have in verse 2. In my Father's house are many abodes. In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's house are many living quarters. So what we're not to think of is many, many different homes. It's basically one enormous mansion with many rooms in it. And what he's trying to get across to them is this. There is plenty of room in my father's house for you. That's the idea. If you would think of a family, there's several things that we could relate to, the Middle East and so forth. But even in Bible times, it was the concept of a pilgrim, and that's who we are. A pilgrim wandering through without a place to stay, and then they could come into this one building, and there was a room for them. There was always a place for them to stay. Or it would be like somebody who has a big estate. And what happens is their whole family could come and there's always plenty of rooms. We think of some of these castles or compounds. And there's always rooms for everybody to stay in. It doesn't matter how many come. And what he's got the picture of here is my father's house has all of the rooms that are necessary. Listen, for all of the saints who have ever lived and will be with him forever. And if your name is written in heaven and you're a believer, there is room for you. You won't run into the problem that even Jesus Christ ran into here on earth where we come to Christmas and they found no room for him at the inn. There is room for all believers. And he comforts them with that. He says, and we need to remember that God cannot lie, and that's why he says what he does. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there was not room for you, I would have told you that already. If there was not a place in heaven, if the the resurrection wasn't a reality, if being with Christ and God for all eternity wasn't a reality, I would have told you that. But I want you to be comforted. You're troubled. Don't focus on that. Worst case is, we just read it in in Psalm 56. What can man do to me? Take my life? What did Paul think about that? For me to live, to die is gain. For me to live as Christ, to die is Gain. If I leave you, I'll be far better off to be with him. Even Christians, we have to be honest, we don't think in those terms. We don't think in terms of eternity while we're living here on earth. He wanted his apostles to get into focus eternity. Look at, in my Father's house, there's many mansions. What does he mean? Many rooms, many abodes, many dwelling places. And he wanted them to understand that his activity, here he is, he needs comfort, and he points out that his activity is not done. Why? Watch what he says. For I go to prepare a place for who? You. Jesus Christ didn't end his work at the crucifixion. It didn't end there. His death was not the end of his life. We know he resurrected. He tells them very clearly that part of his job, even after he leaves them, is to go and prepare a place for them. That's encouraging. What is Jesus Christ doing right now? Playing football? I don't think so. Having a big party? He tells you what he's doing. Do you know, if you're a fellow believer, he has gone to prepare a place for us. I don't know about you, but I try to Try to conceive of what does that mean to us. My my daughter and son-in-law just bought a, a home. And what did they do? They went and prepared it before they moved in. They did some things to it. Right? We prepare it. We get it ready. And they'll still be getting out of boxes and all that stuff. Like you've had the experience if you've gone through that and whatever. But we get and we prepare things. Jesus Christ is preparing. How does he prepare it? There's certain things that Jesus Christ has to still do. Judge Satan. Cast him into the lake of fire, as an example. Judge the nations. He needs to change the whole topography of the world that you and I live in, according to Scripture. What that means is there's still unfulfilled Scripture that's part of the preparation that has to be done before we're in that place with him. Why? Why does Jesus Christ have to go and prepare a place? You know why? Because heaven is not like anything that you and I have ever seen. In fact... He says that it's never even entered into our heart or mind what God has prepared for us. It hasn't even entered it. Let me give you an example. The book of Revelation says that there is no sin in heaven. Amen. You can't get away from sin here. You can't get away from it. Jesus Christ, that is part of the preparation. Listen to this one. There's no night there. No getting dark at 4.30 in the afternoon. It isn't going to happen. Now that sounds simple, but I want you to see the picture. Heaven is going to be tremendous. And he's gone and he wants to comfort them. Look it, get your trust in me. And not only that, while I'm leaving you, I'm not just going to be idle. I am going to be busy. The Lord Jesus Christ is involved in other things, that are not even in this text. He's involved, according to Hebrews, to be involved in intercession for the believer every day. He's interceding right now. For you, believers, he's still busy. I love the book of Acts because as you open up the book of Acts, it says that basically here's the work that Jesus Christ is continuing to do. And do you ever catch that in the book of Acts? He's using people. The whole book of Acts displays the work of Jesus Christ and what he's continuing to do. What is it? Use the church for his honor and glory. Use the likes of you and I. He is still working. He's still very active. Not only that, look at the verse again. He says, I not only go to prepare a place for you, but then he says in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, there's no doubt about this, a place for you, I will come again. Why? Why? To receive you. For what purpose? To myself. That's encouragement. He says, I'm going to prepare the place, the room, if you will, the dwelling place that you will be in forever. I'm going to prepare it just for you. It's custom made. And not only that, I am coming back. Jesus Christ will return to this earth. People might mock with his name. They might not want to believe in him. They might want to cast him aside But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue of every nation on the face of the earth. Everyone. And what they will see is Jesus Christ is coming back to this world. And my personal opinion, and I held it till we got to verse 3, is the best definition of Listen, the best definition of heaven is in verse 3. Did you see it? I will come again and receive you to myself. What's the best definition of heaven? Gold streets in the book of Revelation? No. No night there? No. No sin there? No. You see where we miss it? Somebody just said it. The presence of Jesus Christ. We will be face to face with our Savior. We will be with Him forever. That's what heaven is about, folks. And if you're sitting here today as a professing Christian and saying, if that's what heaven is about, being in the presence of Jesus, and you have a problem with that, you better examine your salvation. Because it's not about gold streets. It's not about any of the other fluff. All of that is wonderful, glorious. But the most glorious thing in heaven is there is no need for the sun because the sun, not S-U-N, but the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ will be the lamp of the city. The presence of Jesus Christ. And he says, I, how is he trying to comfort them in the trouble? Ignore it? No. He says, stop doing that. Focus on me. Focus on eternity. You have a dwelling place with my Father. I'm going away to prepare it. And I'm coming back to get you so you can be with me. What better encouragement could they have had? The greatest description of heaven is not the streets, The greatest description of heaven is the person of Jesus Christ to look on the Savior, the one that was willing to pay the penalty and price for what I deserved and you deserved. That's what heaven is all about. Oh, will we enjoy seeing the saints? Yes. I can't wait to talk to Moses. I can't wait to ask Noah, how in the world did you build that ark without having a Home Depot? I can't wait to sit down, can't you? Really, I can't wait to sit down with people and, and just say, Paul, how did you bear all of those things in the trials? How did, you, how did it feel to be stoned and, and then to get up and go back and preach at those people? Jeremiah, how did it feel to be in that muck and the mire? Daniel, what was it like to be in the lion's den? I look forward to those moments. I look forward to the moment of saying to whoever that person is, that person is, To the angels that God's got protecting me, aren't you glad you can finally rest? And to say to them, I must have drove you crazy, but God put you to protect me. Really, I'm looking forward to meeting those angels that were protecting me. But above all of that, I'm looking forward to seeing my Savior face to face. The one who personally bore my sin. In his own body on the tree. And humbly bowing at his feet. What a moment that will be for you and me. Who have trusted in Christ. And to be with him for all eternity. And all the other blessings that come. The streets and the talking with the other saints. And sitting down with those from the east and the west. Matthew makes it clear. That will happen. It's going to be marvelous. But to be with our Savior forever. That's what he's encouraging them with. He's encouraging them. You're so lost in the world you're in. Look at what I'm going to do for you, and I'm coming back. Focus on that which has eternal value. No wonder we're told in Scripture. To what? Think on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Transformed by the renewing of our mind. Be not conformed to this world. How many believers want to be conformed or as close to this world so, rather be transformed how by the renewing of your mind the thinking get it off the problems get it on to eternity you will see how powerful god can work through you when you get that focus i fail all too often get focused on the problems and difficulties i get down i get discouraged and it's part of being a human being But we need to stop doing that and start focusing on what is God doing. God uses trials in our life to mature us, to conform us to his image, to prepare us for the glory that's, that's why it says, the momentary trials of this life are not worthy to be compelled compared to the glory that we'll see with him. I just paraphrased 2 Corinthians. Oh, that we can have that focus. And then lastly, because I've got to move it along, verses 4 to 6, and how do you deal with this so quick? Thomas is still, you know, I love Thomas. People look at Thomas, doubting Thomas. I am so glad that Thomas said, I want to see the nail prints, and I want to put my finger there, and so forth. I am so glad that Thomas said what he did right here. Never mind doubting Thomas. Praise the Lord for Thomas. Thomas said, look, I number one, we don't know where you're going. You just said we can't even go there now. And how can we know the way? They were confused. I would have been. They were confused even though Jesus Christ was teaching them. And they basically said, all right, now you told us you're, you're going to prepare a place. You're coming back. We don't know where you're going. Is there any doubt that he meant heaven when he was talking in verse 36 of chapter 13 or verse 34 of chapter 13, or chapter 14, verse 1? Absolutely not, because he says his Father's house, and now he tells him how you get there. And what does he do? He's basically saying, even when you don't know what's going to happen, and it seems like things are not right, it didn't seem right to them that Jesus was leaving. It didn't seem right that he was going away. It didn't seem right that he was going to be betrayed. They needed to trust God and trust Jesus Christ anyway even though it didn't make sense. Well, then what's the way? Their confusion was obvious. Jesus made it very clear. He tells them the way. He says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. What does it say? No one. Does that mean no one? Does it mean some? Does it mean just Jew or Gentile? No, it means no one. And I thank God I can pin my hat on it. No one will come to the Father but through me. There isn't a single person. Now, the world doesn't like that. He didn't say, I'll explain to you some of the ways to get to heaven. He didn't say, I'm here to teach you how to be religious. He was very clear. Listen, salvation is exclusive. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if a person grew up Roman Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, uh, what else? Whatever. Mormon, you go down the list and down the list. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you live geographically. It doesn't matter whether it was in Thailand. Doesn't matter whether it was in Japan. Doesn't matter whether it was Africa, South America, North America. Doesn't matter doesn't matter how religious a person is or anything. What matters is there's only one way to the Father. Where is the Father? His house is in heaven, verse 2. No one comes to him but through me. I happen to see a very quick blurb this past week mocking the fact, it was a radio announcer, that mocking the fact that Jesus is the only way only through Jesus, only through faith, and he was mocking it. Sad to say that person, unless he comes to Christ, is going to see that his mockery is going to turn into tragedy. There is no religion. There is no church. There is no religious person. There is no uncle, aunt, family member, no genealogy, no anything that can get you to heaven. Only Jesus Christ. He said he's the exclusive way He is the exclusive truth, and he is the exclusive life. And they needed to see that, as well does everybody else. He is the great I am. This is one of the greatest I am passages that we find in Scripture. It's another one of those ego me passages. I am. They understood. That's how God was identified. If you're looking for salvation in your goodness, If you're looking for salvation in your church, if you're looking for salvation in this church, if you're looking for salvation through another friend or relative, no one can provide it for you but Jesus Christ. All men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, fine, we're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. life. God gives the gift of eternal life. How does he do it? For God so loved the world that he gave, that's a gift, his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied the justice of God toward sin. It's been satisfying. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the grave victorious. He's the first fruits. And he's now still working. Acts chapter 1, I didn't turn there. But that's what he told his disciples, interestingly enough. These very apostles he's talking to, when they saw him leave this planet, the angels said, why are you looking up to heaven? The same Jesus that you saw is coming back. Should have reminded them of John chapter 14. You say, well, it hadn't been written. Those are really technical. I understand that. But it should have reminded them of the Lord's instruction to them. I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. He satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. And the issue is not how good we are. The issue is not what religion we are. The issue is trusting in God's provision of salvation through the exclusive way, the narrow way, the only way, Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting in this pew today and haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, I guarantee you this. Unless you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity apart from God in the lake of fire, which is just as real as heaven. That is not God's desire. It's not our desire. It's to see you in heaven. How does that happen? By believing, by trusting. The very first thing that he said to them after he told them to stop worrying, trust in God, trust in me. I am the way. I am the passageway to the Father. There is no other way. It is narrow and few there be that find it. Why? Because man does the same thing that we're talking about at the trials of life. In our trials, we focus on the problem. We try to come up with our own solutions rather than taking our focus off the problems and say, it's a real problem, God. I have to look to you and trust you. It's the same with salvation. Man looks at it and says, we're all sinners. Everybody's bad. This one's bad. That one's bad. I'm not as bad as this guy. This religion can't be wrong. That religion can't be wrong. We're coming up with all these solutions rather than turning to God, who is the author of salvation, and saying, what's your solution? God says, I'll tell you what the solution is. There's only one way. It's my son who I sent. You will celebrate it at Christmas time. That babe was God with us. That babe bore the penalty and price from sin for sin. And that babe is the one that can bring you into my presence in heaven, and he's the only way that that can happen. Place your faith in him, and you'll be given the gift of eternal life. Hello, Christian, isn't it amazing? Many times when there's others that need comfort, and we should be the one comforting we don't recognize it. They didn't recognize they should have been comforting Jesus. How do we love one another as Christ loved us? That when people are troubled, you comfort them? Even in spite of your difficulty. We get so lost in our problems, we have to be honest. They get us down, they beat us down for days, they get us depressed, we get sick over it. We get worried. Our mind wanders. We get headaches. We go see doctors. We do this. We do that. Rather than saying, it's real. I might need to go to the doctors. I do need to have this examined. But, I've got to trust God. He's the only one that's got the solution. That's what he wanted them to do. But I don't understand. Trust me. I'm going to prepare a place. Trust my way. And God's way is always to trust in him, even as a believer. Going through the circumstances of life. Peter is an interesting epistle. And in one of Peter's epistles, he basically says, even if you suffer when you shouldn't be suffering, that's a praise to God. But what he wants us to do is to trust in the rock of our salvation as we're going through the circumstances. Oh, how we need that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God. I first of all want to pray for anybody in this audience that has not yet trusted in Christ. Help them to see that heaven is real. So is hell. That, Father, you went through the pains of sending your son to die on the cross so that sins could be forgiven, so that people could have eternal life, so that people could come to you and that that way is exclusive. The world might not like hearing that, But Father, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. I pray that you'd open up their understanding. Help them to see as sinners they need to trust in Jesus Christ. They need to trust in your plan, your way, that there's no magical formula, there's no special prayer. They can pray right there in the pew. And I pray that they would come to Christ and trust in him. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we have to be honest, we still get troubled We still get worried by the circumstances in life that come into our life. All these things that happen and we get our focus off eternity. We get our focus off our Savior and the fact that he's going to prepare not just a place for the apostles, but a place for us who have trusted in you. Help our focus to be on eternity, not on our problems. When we don't understand, when we don't know why, when the way doesn't seem the way that we would choose Help us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you that you might direct our paths. Help us, Father, to just rejoice in the God that loves us and cares for us, even when we fail to care for ourselves the way we should. And I pray that, Father, we would live in victory this week, in this church, in our lives individually, as we trust in you, as we trust in your way, as we lean not on our own understanding, And as we place our values, not on temporal things, but on eternal things. Help us to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.